Hey everyone, uh, we're here for another week of the Harlem Capital Pod. This week we've got myself and Gabby on holding it down. Um, hey so we're going to a couple of topics, keep it shorter uh, since it's the two of us, but wanted to still share what's going on in the firm. Um, so I guess let's start, you know, it's the second week of September. We, the firm closes office for the last two weeks of August. Uh, like completely closed, no partner meetings, no channel calls. You can do your own work if you want. Um, so I kind of wanted to start there. Just like, what did you do during your break? And even like share some insight to people on like how Harlem Capital thinks about breaks, the importance of taking that time, particularly going into the fall, which is a pretty busy season. Um, so, you know, love to hear your thoughts. I can share some of mine afterwards. Totally. And everyone on the team knows I'm very passionate about our times off. Um, but I'd say stepping back, like we have a pretty flexible vacation policy. So I guess you could say it's a limited people work the hours they need to work outside of our core hours you can take cab off. You can travel if you need to. Um, you know, as a small team, we all know how to get our work done, work well together, but really believe in letting people have the space to do that in the way that works best for them. And um, on top of that, what we like to do is in the last two weeks of August and the last two weeks of December, we actually close the entire firm uh, in what I will call our collective disconnect. Because then it gives us a chance for everyone to step away all at the same time so that there's no pressure for one person sending email, trying to follow up on a deal, trying to work with some founder or other investor externally. And it really just gives us all a time to like reset and reflect, especially before the two biggest uh, investment periods of the year. So typically from Labor Day to Thanksgiving is what we call the fall investment sprint. It's when there's so much activity on the investment side of new deals, founders are raising, there's so many conferences and travel that it's really helpful to get like that core time to like break away and, and reset. And then last two weeks of December around the holidays, uh, it's a hard time to get anyone working anyway. And so it's just easier to step away, give everyone the time they need um, and flexibility and, and then come back refreshed for the new year. Um, and so, yeah, in August, I went out to Portugal. Uh, highly recommend. TikTok is right. It's incredible. Um, but what did you end up doing, Ani? Uh, I also was in Europe. I did a cruise in Italy and France and Spain, then went to Spain and France with my wife. And I think to the point of like, some people can say, hey, if you're giving too much time off, people work less. I actually think, you know, one of my phrases is less is more. If you can kind of condense the periods of time where people are super focused versus trying to have people work all the time, uh, you'll be less productive. So you're more productive when you work less and just work more efficiently. I actually think the breaks were most useful for the partners, particularly like Jerry and I, considering when you'll see organizations is like, if juniors go on vacation, like when they go on vacation, like they're typically out of office, like, Hey, like there's nothing for me to do. I told the firm I was leaving like as a partner or as, you know, put it for a founder, you know, founders go on vacation. Like usually you just, it's really hard for you to completely disconnect and there's something comes up. Right. And so the time when we close the whole office, it's really helpful for particularly founders and partners to really like have that time where like nobody needs them. And like, yes, you can still do work, but it's not like people who are looking for you versus I think when I was a junior, at least if I went on vacation, I had less concerns about that. So I actually find like the closing office is like really helpful for founders. And it's probably one of the few ways that they actually will take time off like fully um, and not be afraid of things. But I think Find those slow moments for us. It is in the August and December for whatever your organization is, your low periods and like give your team that time off because like you're not doing much during that time period anyway. And so why, you know, why not take advantage of that? Definitely. And I think we're also even just seeing across founders in our portfolio or others that we end up talking with that burnout is real. Um, mental health challenges are real. 
And a lot of that's really like not getting enough sleep, not being able to work out, not eating well. And so if you can start to carve out some of those intentional times to get away with your family, do what you need to do, what's enjoyable, I think even in our own portfolio, we're seeing a huge benefit for founders who, even if it's a, a long weekend here or there, one day a month, whatever it is to be able to step back and reflect and get time to recharge too. Yeah. So what's a thought about this recently who was going through burnout and for me, it's like you have to build into your schedule what you prioritize versus trying to like have your work schedule and then find slots for what you want, right? So for me, that's like working out, spending time with my partner. It's like every day on my calendar, which my whole team can see, it's like my one-hour workout spot. And if I have any social life with my wife or my friends, and I back into like the meetings that I'd write or for Jared, he has his daughter has swim class and like it's on the calendar. So we know like, hey, there's no partner meeting during that swim lesson, right? And so... People, I think people sometimes are afraid to like take that step because it kind of feels like, oh, like, who are you to like say like your hours more valuable, your time more valuable, but like the reality is like your time should be more valuable to you. I think there's something wrong with that. And it's like, just let people know of your time, like, what do you really prioritize? And then like, hopefully if your team has a good team, then like your team will actually take into account and make sure like, we want you to be a part of it. We want you to do what you do in your life. And as a founder in particular, like you have, you're at the top of the food chain. So like, you have the right to decide when meetings are and you can move stuff, you know, make sure that it's appropriate for your schedule too. Totally. And uh, I know like your workout consistency, like you just did a hundred days of working out straight through and I'm trying to up my workout game a little bit more. Okay. Can you share like, okay, what was like the one thing that like really worked for you to carve that out? And um, yeah, what that meant for you? Yeah. So I hit a hundred days on Monday. I didn't like, initially I wanted to do 75, got to 75. I was like, let me go for a hundred. Now that I've had I'm trying to go for 150. So I'm kind of like, when is it going to stop? But really, like, it's just a mental game for me. It's like, I know what I'm capable of. I know the benefits of, like, what workouts do for me mentally, productivity-wise, and health-wise. I'm extremely focused on that longevity, like, long-term. And, like, the the workouts for me are almost like, it's like my number one social activity. So, like, whether it's basketball or tennis or run club, like, I enjoy meeting with other friends and meeting people during those workouts. And it brings me a lot of joy. The hardest part of consistency really was the travel. So I was gone 49 of the hundred days um, in various places for for work or not work. And so that's like when it's hard. It's like kind of like when you're in New York, I was in New York City for three weeks. And like after 5 p.m. in New York, it's just constant happy hours and conferences. And so how do you make sure you like find that time? Like that's really hard. But I think once you block on your calendar and it's like, hey, so what I typically do is Sunday of every week. I'll go and look at my slots and basically like put my workouts on the calendar for the whole week ahead of time. Um, but then it's like, I have to go in and I, I have to move the workout schedule manually. And it's like, do I really want to change that? Like, let me just keep it there. Um, and so like, that's like my little trick. And then also my Apple watch uh, helps me to compete with myself. I think that's the biggest thing for consistency to work out is like, how do you compete with yourself? It's not a competition. You don't have to compete in the gym and lift more weights or, you know, compete with another person next to you in a spin class. It's just like, I'm competing with myself to do 30 minutes a day, did this many calories. I look at my rings and like, I'm not there yet. So like, let me keep going. Definitely. And we were talking about as a team that like getting into the one, the habit of working out and trying to stay healthy, all of that is really important. But like, um, there's this uh, 100, what is it called? The 100 doc, how to live to 100 how documentary. To 100. Documentary on Netflix that talked about the blue zones across the world. I think there's nine of them where people live to be 100. And that's just the physical activity is just part of the day to day. But there is even so much more to that around wellness. Um, and I think the key one was really about like what it looks like to build and cultivate community and that being a really critical pillar 
for all of those different blue zones in addition to exercise and getting enough sunshine and um, eating, eating really well. well as well and all the things we know but like are so hard in some of our busy constrained lives too. Yeah, I think community is super important. And so I like workouts that bring community because like if I enjoy working out, like I want to be with other people who enjoy working out and like then we have a common interest. And the other thing for the blue, for the how to live to 100 blue zones was um, purpose, right? And so a lot of these people who were living until 100 years old plus, like they didn't stop working, right? There wasn't this like retirement, but it wasn't traditional work on your computer. It was like, hey, I saw the garden to like produce my food or like they were cattling sheep or whatever it was. And that purpose like gives you a reason to want to continue living life, right? And so I think it's really important as well, whether it's through your work or not through your work that you really find like what that purpose is. And I think, you know, I think we're fortunate that we get to work for a company where we do feel like we have our purpose and live that through our work. But for a lot of people, like their job isn't, you know, necessarily their purpose, right? And so how do you find that outside of work to make sure that you ensure like your brain wants to live to be a hundred um, to some extent? So one to share with you guys is a pretty important part of the firm. Uh, we think, you know, it's critical for culture building. But now let's switch to, to tech side. So, you know, IPO market recently opened. Uh, Arm IPO price yesterday at the high end. Clavio and Instacart are coming out. And I think a lot of people are hopeful that this will lead to Stripe and a number of other companies uh, going to market. I know that you dug into the Clavio S1, which is basically the filing that companies do when they go public. So curious to hear any insights you have from Clavio, Gabby, or any thoughts just like on the IPO market given to the first uh, wave of IPOs we've seen all year. Yeah, it's the first we've seen all year. And actually, Arm, the AI chip designer company that IPO'd yesterday, this it's the largest IPO we've had in two years. So it really does feel like, you know, if there is a little bit of a party or like a sigh of relief that we might be out of this period, like that is really exciting. Um, but I ended up digging into Clavio's IPO and they're a marketing automation platform really just used for email marketing or SMS marketing from e-commerce brands, merchants. And so if you ever bought something from like a J Crew or whatever, they might be using Clavio um, to send out those email notifications. We focus on e-commerce enablement as part of our investing themes. And one of the, a couple of the companies we work with are partners with Clavio um, just because they're an incredible platform. And so there's a couple of things that were really interesting in their uh, S1 filing. Um, one of the most fascinating was that they raised over $450 million, but only spent $15 million of that capital and still have the rest. And I think that's really remarkable, especially because they grew in this period of time where it was all about raise as much money, spend as much money, grow yep. as fast as possible, do everything like fast, break things, and that they ended up staying really thoughtful and methodical. And so, you know, regardless of where their like burn rate is today, like the fact that they only spent $15 million of VC funding is pretty remarkable. And the founders, co-founders collectively own 52% of the company. So I think that's it's actually, insane. An, that's insane. It's a new record. I think the closest was uh, another company where the founder owned 30%. Um, this is both co-founders, but still really big reminder that if you can like manage capital well, you can control your destiny, control how much dilution and how much you end up owning of your company when you exit. Yeah, I think it's pretty remarkable. I remember seeing the table it has founder ownership at uh, IPO and it like goes from like 1% all the way up to them. It's just like you build this multi-billion dollar business and you own 1% to 5%, you know, yes, you're still, you're going to make money, but it's just that, that piece always kind of bugged me. As a venture capitalist, right, it's kind of the flip side of like, hey, VCs are asking for, you know, we typically ask for 10 to 15%. And so to the same time, we're telling our founders like, hey, raise less, 
own more longer, but as VC as a whole, like we obviously want ownership. So there is a conflict of interest. You have to make sure as a fund, like you're listening to the right partners. There is a balance of like, there is value to taking VC money, uh, to making sure you have the expertise to getting capital to accelerate, uh, accelerate your growth. But I think now we're in this new era where people aren't just in this raise it all, you know, raise everything you can. Um, but there is benefit to raising capital. Just like there's more uh, details on who, who the VC is and what's happening. So just be thoughtful about that. I thought that was really fascinating for Clavio. I mean, kudos to them for being able to like do what they did. It's pretty impressive. It is. Yeah. I think the other big lesson from their S1 was that, you know, they started, I think back in 2012, no customers, no products. And in two years had a hundred customers. Two years after that, had 10,000 customers. And so really big 10X step ups every two years. And I just think it's inspiring because we know how long the journey can be to build your first product, get your first customer, find product market fit. Um, but they kind of set a new bar and benchmark for what growth in software can look like. Uh, it's not always that linear. Um, and I'm sure their journey wasn't linear. Those are just like the highlights looking back. Um, but a really interesting bar to realize can be reached um, and something to shoot for if you're a SaaS founder. And it's the complete opposite of a chart we recently saw um, Lenny posted, um, which basically showed like Slack, Figma, Airtable, all took four to five years to launch your products, right? Not even like product market fit, like launch products and make your product market fit. And these are all, you know, multi-billion dollar businesses. And so I think about like that in this time where now there's a lot of zombies as people are calling them, companies that have five, 10, 15 million cash in the balance sheet, but there's just no clear product market fit. And thinking about which of these companies should return capital, which of these companies will die, which of these companies is the next Slack or Figma, right? It's really hard. And I think those Slack stories kind of give VC investors hope where it's like, they're very clear, like, hey, this com this company probably should return capital back. But like, you just never know if they're going to be Slack. You never know if they're going to be Roblox, right? Where Roblox was around for 12 years and then COVID obviously made them go with what they got to. And so... How do you like, how do you think about that? Like as a you know, portfolio manager in this time, like what do you do? How, what's the right uh, discussion with the companies for like returning capital versus not if they haven't reached product market fit yet? Uh, I think it's tough. I think it depends on a couple of factors, like how long they've been in the journey, how long they've been focused on one particular idea, how they tried to pivot, have they really tried to identify where value can be? Did they switch their customer base? I think if you've gone through all of the different sets of pivots that you're passionate about, and then the ones that you might even be able to build, even if you're not passionate about and still not finding like what's that end game and that goal, then maybe it makes sense to wind things down and find that soft landing. Um, but that's really tough, right? Because it's the thing that you've been building all of this time. It's uh, the, the teams you've been creating and building as well. Um, and I guess I'm curious uh, from like the Roblox lens, I think they had always seen like little glimmers of hope throughout the way and kept moving in that direction and eventually found that like fast current of the fast moving water. Um, but I think it, it really goes down to what you as a founder want, what you want for your business and, and whether you can see yourself continuing in that journey, knowing that it still might be a slog for a few more years. But how do you think about it? Yeah, I feel the same. I mean, I, I generally like, don't like asking founders to return capital as long as they're like, they have the passion still they're making progress. Like ultimately in the day, like you're giving capital to founders because you trust their judgment. Like to me, that's really why I give you money. It's like, I trust your judgment. I, you know, essentially I think you're really smart. I, you, you know, the right things. And ultimately like, I'm not paying you 
to just replicate what I tell you, right? You've got multiple investors around the table. What I what I say, I think, you know, is smart, but like other investors think what they say is smart. And also like, I'm trusting you to funnel all that information and make the decision. That's like why I give you the capital. It's why LPs give us capital, right? If they wanted to run their own fund, they would start their own fund. If I wanted to start a company, I would start my own company. So that's like my general view. I don't think it means to like, there's no scenario where people shouldn't give capital back. I just think I probably have a higher bar then some investors also think the later you get, it's a different story, right? When you're writing a one and $2 million check, very different than a 10 to $50 million check, very different than 50, $100 million check. Um, so I think the later in growth you get, you know, there's more things to be said. You're also higher up on the liquidation preference stack. But I think it's a tough conversation. I think it kind of also goes to, I was having a conversation with a VC, just like there's just harder conversations about, right? Like because VCs are getting it from LPs. So the LPs are looking for what we call DPI or distributions. And a lot of VCs can't give that. And so now VCs in the board meetings are having conversations where founders are like, well, like you've never brought this up before. Right. And they're, they're kind of wondering why it's because the VCs are hearing things from LPs that they never heard before. And so you kind of have this trickle down effect. And it's really like the first time for a lot of people, like in many years, they've seen tension. Like I've invested in a couple of funds personally, and I've seen three or four of the GPs, you know, break up. Right. And then for our founders, we probably had two or three founders break up and we didn't have any founders split before 2022. Right. I haven't seen any GP split before. Like, so it's like after 2022, bear market, things aren't going well. People start to self reflect and ask questions they weren't asking before. And you start to see tension within companies, within funds. And you start to see tensions between funds and uh, founders and then between fund managers and LPs. And so I think that like this period is just like really hard for a lot of people because they're experiencing emotions from stakeholders that they probably never experienced before. Um, and they're all valid and they're right. Like, hey, you didn't bring this up. This isn't something that I should be focused on. But at the same time, like, I think it's helpful to have the context of like, why are people bringing up and questioning the things they're bringing up? Why are LPs asking me these questions, right? And then for you to ask, why are VCs asking me these questions? Like, those are things to think about versus like a personal standpoint, uh, and letting emotions get in the way, but like emotions will inevitably get involved because for all of us, like these are our babies, these are our companies. Totally. And I think that's like why it's important that we are starting to see some of this IPO activity. It's like hopefully going to release the pressure valve that we see definitely at late stage and to your point is trickling through the LP base down to GPs, investors, and then to the companies and founders and their teams themselves. Um but yeah, it has been a really hard time from that lens. And so hopefully we'll be able to work out of it. But I do also think that as we work out of it, I think the companies that are now being started, the companies that will thrive and survive are going to be a little bit stronger, leaner, better than the companies maybe started a couple of years prior, just because the environment uh, was different. And with you just constraints, you, have to be you had to. And now I think um, with constraints, like we get that much more creativity, we get that much more value. People are building more thoughtfully, slower, more meaningful companies that I think will be more durable and um, longer lasting at the same time. You know, I'm I'm excited. I think it's a a great time to build. It's definitely harder. It's you know, it's funny too. Where we think, oh, I'm so excited for the recession, like better valuations, more time for diligence. I'm like, that all sounds good in theory, but like. I don't think it's more fun necessarily to like, be investing in bear markets. Like, I don't think so. Like, no. yes, like it, I think it will lead to better returns. I think it is more prudent. I'm glad we returned to reality. But I think it's an oversimplification to say like, you know, it's so much more fun now, right? Like we're kind of back to the the regular folks and like, you know, in the Web3 world, like it's Web3 winner and all the Web3 people have left. But like, 
it's kind of fun being in summer. Like summer is summer for a reason. Like, summer is good. And people it, don't I think like it, winter. Agreed. And I think it also only like that phrasing also only talks about one side of the table. Like it might be more fun as an investor, but definitely not as a founder. And so I think that there has to be that like understanding and empathy on both sides that like. But it's more fun to start me. So it's like as a founder, it's better to start. You, it's harder to raise capital in winter. Right. It's better to start companies to the talent and yada, yada. It's, you know, it's easier to invest in new companies in winter as a VC, but it's harder for your existing portfolio, right? And so it really comes down to like, if you're a new fund, you're on fund one or two, like us, like it's probably an in-between, I would say there's pros and cons, right? Now, if you're a fund five, six, seven, then like you're a new fund saying, hey, this fund's gonna be a great vintage, probably doesn't outweigh the six other funds where you have portfolio companies that are getting marked down 30 to 70% of the growth stage. Good point. Right. So and so like, yeah, I think it's more advantageous for my guess is for earlier funds in this winter period, but like, I can't imagine people who have multiple funds, the, the bigger funds, the insights and Dreesons, et cetera, where it's like, yes, it's better to invest. But like you've got a lot of portfolio companies that are going through it right now. Like that's way more stressful. Like, oh my God, like I invested in this new company at half the price of last year. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> point. Like the, the markdowns hurt, you know. Yeah, the markdowns hurt because like you were people in all facets of life, you remember losses more than wins, right? So like you have a company go to Unicorn, great. But like if your Unicorn goes to zero, you remember that way more than the company. More than anything unicorn. else. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, um, cool. Well, what about, let's, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, the primary summit which is a good summit, uh, seat summit in New York that Gabby went to. I haven't even heard the highlights yet, so you guys are hearing this first. Uh, so I want to hear what the highlights were for Gabby. I know. I'd say, like, if I had to give one tagline, it's that, like, New York is back, the place to be, where people want to build, people want to invest. <laughs> New York never left, but, like, I think, you know, always online, it's SF, Miami, you know, New York. Uh, but the pri primary summit was put on by Primary BC. New York-based fund focused on the York founders. So shout out to that team for an awesome summit. And they really just bring the entire ecosystem together of investors and founders and operators, everybody all in one room for some great talks, a lot of really cool networking. And especially because it's right after the Labor Day holiday, like everybody's back, everybody's ready to start investing or raising. And so it's just a really cool energy. Uh, I think I had two really uh, of my favorite talks. One was with Dave Frankel from Founder Collective. So very great um, early stage fund. And then Fred Wilson and, and Rekha Kenan gaining that USV. Um, I think the overwhelming sentiment is, from both of those talks was that, again, the companies launching today are going to be stronger, leaner, better than, you know, or more, more focused on the fundamentals than companies in the last couple of years. Um, that, you know, we as an industry, you know, got overinflated. And Fred had a lot of really great uh, zingers about this in terms of how much we've overcapitalized companies, how LPs overcapitalized BT funds, and that by staying small and lean, that's actually net better for the ecosystem, at least in like the, the USV strategy overall. Um, but I think kind of tied to your point, like, is this a good time to be in a bear market? Is it a bad time? One of the things that also came out um, of the conversation was that like, as a VC fund, you've got a portfolio of companies. You don't have to be in every winner company. You don't have to be in every unicorn. You just have to be in the right unicorn for you and your strategy and the one big winner in every fund to return capital to your LPs and, and be successful. Um, and then the last thing also is we talked about AI, which is you know the new web free <laughs> moment. It's going through its hype cycle. But as investors, it is really tempting to like fall into those types of trends and only chase trends and momentum um, in the startups you're gonna back. But it's actually probably the least profitable thing to do, right? Like it's better just to be consistent on the things that you do really well 
And if the whole market is saying right now they're not doing Web3, they're going to do AI, then that's when you shouldn't actually do Web3 and not AI. So really interesting about like how as a firm, it's really important just to stick true to what is true to you, but also understand when you're in those counter cyclical moments to find great companies and opportunities and help build the future versus kind of following the trend in the wave. I mean, that quote that you shared, um, you know, if I had to TLDR, it was like, if you ask an investment banker in the eighties, how much they work, they said 80, a hundred hours. If you ask an investment banker today, how much they work, they'll say 80, a hundred hours. And since then we've had, you know, Microsoft Excel and PowerPoint and Cap IQ and Bloomberg terminals, et cetera. Um, you know, the thesis being that like AI will not shorten the amount of time that people work, right? It will just alter the things that people do. And it doesn't mean that like the work we're doing necessarily like the best use. And somebody replied to my tweet because I tweeted this. Um, like, hey, does that mean like we're actually doing better work or are we just kind of wasting people's time, right? I think ultimately humans have to provide value to why they should earn whatever they're earning, right? And so to some extent, like, you know, bankers could work 50, 60 hours maybe with AI technology. But like if that's the case, I'm probably not going to pay you what people pay bankers. And then the question becomes like, does the bank even want that trade-off? Right. And so, you know, I think that that's a hard thing, particularly in this environment where we're inflationary and things are more expensive. Like, do people want more time off where they're going to get paid less? And because I don't believe that companies will pay you the same to do the same work to work less. And what we're seeing this with in real life, right? Like, hey, I can do my job. I can do it from home. Everybody's calling people back to the office. They want to see you. They want to know how much you're working. Like, there's there's value to that as well. And so, you know, I think often there's this balance of like how much work you get done. Um how much time it also like can I actually like see you in the culture and all the other things around that. So we'll see. But I thought that quote that you shared really stood out to me because I was like, yeah, like I still did a hundred hours a week and we had way more tools than they did. Totally. You're still doing a ton now, right? Um, just- but what I think my there were things would probably could shift, right? Is like maybe rather than sitting and doing your work in Excel, if your AI model is doing that for you, like you're actually going out and building more relationships. And we're doing the things that like we're actually better at doing than computers and letting technology do what it should be doing so that we can just go be more human and connect with people in the way that technology never will. Or get like so different to build a customer relationship person to person versus over email, if that yep. makes sense. Yeah, you're just instead of being in your cubicle on Excel, you'll be on a plane more flying to random cities across there the you country. Go. Or at uh, work conferences and summits and everything. Uh, all right, well, thanks for sharing the learnings. Uh, that's another week. Appreciate you guys listening and we'll talk to you guys later. Thanks, everyone.